Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconicus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptised by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptised and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorised to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation... And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptise you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. The road into the farm that I grew up on, it's, it's not that road, by the way, um, but it followed our boundary fence, and the boundary fence wasn't straight, and so there were two 90-degree bends the road used to have to take, which was really painful. Like, they were really sharp corners, and... Um, 
particularly if you're in a truck, they were really frustrating. You know, one day the, the council engineer come to see Dad and he said, look, we want to straighten this road up a bit. And Dad went, oh, thank goodness for that. So their plan was that they'd cut a corner off of our farm and give it to the neighbour and cut a corner off the neighbour's farm and give it to us and turn it into a two 45-degree corners instead of two 90-degree corners. And Dad agreed to that, although I always thought that Dad got the raw end of the deal because the neighbour got our cultivation and we got his scrub. But... There was a lot of work had to be put into that road. Uh, we lived in Mellonol country and so it all needed to be levelled up but of course it had to be surveyed and straightened and it had to be refenced and it, the road had to be formed up and then it needed to be graded and rolled and then put gravel on it and, and grade it and roll it again and just as well Alex isn't here or else he'd be starting to feel pretty good by now. Alex is our resident road builder. Um, but it's a big job to build a road. And, but nowhere near as big as building that road. So for those that aren't familiar with it, that's the new, the second range crossing at Toowoomba there. Um, new thing, which has since all fallen to bits. Um, but there's some massive earthworks and bridge works and cuttings and everything went in there, but obviously not enough. Uh, it's a big job to build a road. And the ministry of John the Baptist was spiritual road building. It was preparing the way for the one who was going to come after him, who is greater than him. Isaiah had said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Right? It's an image of making a road for the approach of the coming king. And the highway that clears the way for God's coming is a purified heart. Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, if you're anything like me, um, you probably need a fair bit of straightening up because that's, that's me. Um, a lot of levelling have to be done in me to make me into having a pure heart. And for Israel itself, things really needed to be straightened out and levelled up. So today's Bible reading reveals a, a very complex political situation within, is, within Israel and a very strained religious situation. So politically, Israel, like, like many nations there in that area at the time, was subject to Roman occupation and rule. And they didn't like that, of course. They'd been, the Romans had come in, given them a jolly good flogging, and then set themselves up to, to administer the area. And um, Luke lists out the rulers that, that Israel had over them. So let's start at the top. There was the Roman emperor. So it was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now that lets us know pretty sure that that is around about 29 AD. And then it talks about Pontius Pilate. He was the Roman governor of Judea, of that area. But it didn't end there. You see, you see the practice of the Romans is when they conquered a land, they then, to try and get the locals to obey them, they'd sort of set up a local puppet king. Right? So, that, so they'd find a local who sort of had some kind of connection, some kind of right to be king of that area, but who was 
pretty happy with Rome, right? So, so he, and he would become their puppet. So he would have some level of ruling responsibility, but there was no doubt who was pulling the strings. He was completely beholden to Rome. And so there were a bunch of what we called tetrarchs who were called kings, but they weren't kings over the whole area. They're kings of little various regions. And of course, the one that we're most familiar with is King Herod, because uh, he pops up a few times in, and there's a couple of different King Herods, um, but basically not a nice man. Right? So that was the political situation. But when it came to the Jewish religion, right, there, there might have been a multitude of kings, but there could only be one high priest. And Luke says that the high priest, singular, was Annas and Caiaphas. Two blokes, two blokes were the one high priest. You see, what had happened was, was Annas was the high priest. But in 15 AD, so 14 years before John the Baptist started preaching, the Roman governor of the day, by the name of Gratus, he didn't like Annas, the high priest, and so he stood him down. And over the next few years, he had a succession of about five different high priests until they finally settled on Caiaphas, who was the son-in-law of Annas, by the way. Uh, and Caiaphas seemed to be able to stick it out. And so Caiaphas was recognised by the political folk as the high priest of... And, but it seems that the real high priest and the one who actually had the power behind the scenes and the one who the people still recognised as the high priest was Annas. Right? So Israel was just in total disarray. There was too many kings who weren't really kings and too many high priests that weren't really high priests. And this was God's perfect timing for his Messiah to come. Jesus Christ came. He came as the long-awaited king of Israel, the one and final king. And he came as the new high priest, the only intermediary to be between God and man. But to prepare for this coming king, the groundwork had to be done. And the highway that prepares the way for God's coming is a purified heart. And so the word of God came to John. It wasn't John's own idea. It was the word of God that sent him out into the wilderness to proclaim a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Right? Now, we're going, I'm going to say that over and over and over again because we need to understand this. It is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism, going down under the water and coming up again, it's a symbol of being washed, but it was, it was something which was done as an affirmation of the commitment that a person was making to a completely new relationship with God, which was about repentance. Repentance was what prepared one to receive Jesus. It wasn't the act of baptism. It was what baptism was was signifying repentance. You see, John was very clear. It wasn't about him. John was not the Messiah. He was merely someone preparing the way for the one 
who was much mightier, much stronger than him who was coming. The one who John said, I'm not even worthy to undo his sandals. Right? So the message of John the Baptist was a message of preparing, receiving, avoiding. Preparing for the coming king, receiving forgiveness, avoiding judgment. And all of this message is characterized as good news. So, what did John preach? Well, obviously Luke didn't have room to include everything that John preached, but we are given a few little snippets of what you could have expected if you went to a John the Baptist meeting. Um, so John's place of ministry, first of all, was out in the wilderness. So he didn't go to the crowds. The crowds came to him. And when the crowds came to John, he gave them a real seeker-friendly welcome. Is that what he did? You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now imagine if I was to, to greet our newcomers at church today. Do you mind me using you as an example? We've, we've, got, some, we've got some newcomers at church here today. They've, they've come from, from Sydney, uh, Campbelltown. Campbelltown? Yeah, and um, bought a house in St George, so looking at moving here, so make them welcome, please. Imagine if I'd met them. Oh, yes, what's your name? Oh, I'm Kevin. Oh, yes, I saw that from your number plate. And I'm Mandy. Oh, hello, I'm Michael. By the way, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know if they'd come again, would you? Probably not. Um, he referred to them as offspring of snakes. Now, biblically, a snake represents being opposed to God, represents Satan. And, and, and these crowds, as religious as they were for coming along to get baptised, they came from a long line of people who were supposed to belong to God, but in just about every way they were opposed to God. Now, whenever you see a snake at the house, what... Ken, are you the snake killer or is Jenny? Jenny's the snake killer. My, my wife just hates snakes. She'll, she'll just run them off. Sorry? <laughs> so when, when you see a snake at the house, I'll, I'll go from my childhood because we actually haven't had that many snakes in our married life. Um, sorry? Thank goodness. Robin just hates snakes. Like, yeah, I had a plastic snake in my drawer once in a paper bag for a kid's story and she came in and, and she just goes, Woo! I really copped it for having that in my drawer. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so I'll go to my childhood. So, so whenever there'd be a snake at the house, and there was a lot of them at Gundawindi and death adders and brown snakes and red belly blacks, and, but death adders, they were quite common for us where we were. And um, if we saw a snake, Dad would say, right, you kids, watch that while I go and get the shotgun. Of course, you can't get the shotgun now. It takes too long to get it out of the lockbox and blah, 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 blah. So you'd have to get, get the hoe. Although I actually have seen Dad spear one with a steel post. Uh, yeah, going back to the heritage, I'd say. And um, anyway, the, the snake, he'd it, say, you kids, watch it while I go and get the hoe. And we'd watch. And... I reckon nine times out of ten, they'd slither into the dry buffalo grass or cane grass. We had a couple of patches of, sorry, not cane grass, um, roads grass. I did some of that near the house. And, and Dad had come out 
and he always carried a box of matches in his pocket as well. And of course, the snake would be in the grass. So what he'd do is he'd throw the match in the thing and then, right, oh, you watch that side, I watch this side. And, and yep, sure enough, the snake had come out towards me instead of towards dad. But that's, that's the image that we're getting here. Like the fire in the grass and the snake just flees from it. And what he's saying is, you children of snakes, you children of the devil, how did you know to, to get out of the fire that's coming? How did you know to flee God's judgment? See, John was seeing those two comings of Jesus. Maybe he saw them together, I don't know. But in Jesus' first coming, he came as saviour. And at his second coming, Jesus will come as judge. And that's what he's talking about when he says he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Two different comings of Jesus. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves and we'll get to that shortly. So when the people came to be baptised, they came, they arrived there as a people opposed to God. And as people who were destined for the judgment of fire. And the message of John the Baptist is the same as the message that we must preach today. Repent. Repent. Now, the Greek word metanoia, uh, which we translate as repent, it has a, a classical Greek dictionary meaning of change of mind. Right? Change your mind. But biblically, the way that repentance is used is as a conversion or as a turning. To, to repent is to turn away from evil and to turn toward God. And it's a complete turning of the complete person. It, it's a turning of heart and soul and mind. It, it's a turning of our actions away from the actions of evil to the actions of godliness. Now, there is a horrible heresy being preached in this world today that is a very anemic gospel that relies on the classical dictionary meaning of, of repent, to change your mind. And that's the teaching that says, all you have to do is change your mind about who Jesus is. And you need to just start believing that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for your sins, and that for you is repentance. That's the modern version of repentance. The problem is it bears zero resemblance to the biblical image of what repentance is about. Repentance is thoroughly practical. It's a complete about-face. It's a U-turn. It's a turning around of the whole person. It's a conversion of a person to a whole new way of life. And as I've said so many times to you in the past, it is something which is so radical, Jesus described it as being born again. Now, there once was a time that a person's race or a person's heritage was thought to be the key to their salvation. And so for the, you know, if they were descendants of Abraham or Isaac and Jacob, the, the promise was for them, right? Wrong. And John set them straight. John said to these people, don't start saying to yourself, oh, we've got Abraham as our father. Um, you know, we're, we're all very important. Look at our godly heritage. It's all, it's all good for us. John said, don't, don't count on that. If God wanted children of Abraham, he could turn these stones into children of Abraham. 
See, it wasn't heritage that he was after. It was repentant hearts. Repentance is what's required. Repentance is turning away from evil. Repentance is turning away from godlessness. And it's turning toward God and toward his righteousness. That is how we prepare for the coming of Jesus. Verse 8 says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You see, when we repent and turn toward God, everything changes. Everything changes. One's life cannot remain the same. The things that we used to value, the things that we used to do will be radically transformed. And if you have not been radically transformed, I have to ask you the question, have you repented? In verse 9, we find another image of judgment, and, and it's judgments for those who are not transformed. It's like God has this dirty, great, big axe ready to cut down the tree at, at, at the roots of the tree, chop it completely down. It says, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And, and this is a message of judgment that I believe the Western Christian church needs to hear again today. And stop saying, that's a message for those, for those Jews. It's a message for all of us. I believe our God is very tired of when we as Christians, a Christian in mind, and maybe Christian in what we say, but godless in what we do, and godless in how we live. Repent. Now, to those who heard the message of John the Baptist, they were left in, in no doubt that repentance is expressed with activity. I said to John, what then shall we do? Now, how did John answer that? Did he say, no, no, you've got it all wrong. Don't do anything. If you start thinking about having to do things, you're not living by grace. Is that what John said? No. No. Then why do people preach that today? What does repentance look like? What then must I do? He told them to bear fruit, plural, in keeping with repentance. What does that look like? It's very practical. If you see someone who, who doesn't have a shirt to wear, who has, doesn't have a single shirt or a single pair of pants, and you've got two shirts, you give them two. You've got two pair of shorts, you give them one pair of shorts. But he's not talking about um, communism where we share everything we have equally with everyone. What he's talking about is if there is someone who is in genuine need for the basics of life and you've got the ability to help them to have that shirt that they need or to have that tucker that they need, you do it. If a person doesn't have any food, you share your tucker with them. He's talking about the most basic human needs. A repentant person, a person who turns their heart toward God, will demonstrate this as we share from our excess with those who have nothing. 
then the tax collectors came to be baptized. Ooh. You would have seen the people going, wow, look at this, tax collectors. Now, and they said, teacher, what shall we do? Now, let me tell you about tax collectors. They were hated, and with good reason. Um, now, I don't think I've ever met anyone who enjoys paying tax. Does, does anyone here enjoy paying tax? No. I actually have had someone say to me, yes, because it means I've made a profit. Um, and good on that person for saying that. Um, but the Romans, they were, they were the ones who were collecting the taxes, but they didn't want to do it themselves. They, they got the locals to collect it for them. So imagine, like we don't like paying tax, but imagine if we were paying tax to a foreign government, right? So they've come in, given our nation a jolly good flogging, um, and now we're subject to them and we have to bend, bend the knee to them and do whatever they tell us to do, and, and then we pay the taxes to them, and we know that that taxes is going to pay their military to continue to oppress us. How would you feel about that? Not very nice, is it? Yeah, so nobody wanted to do, to do that job. And so the tax collectors were paid very well to do it, but also on the side, because they had, had power and authority to be able to do this, they could push things a bit, bit further and tell the charge them a bit more and stick that in their pocket to themselves. So the locals hated them. They're seen as collaborators with the enemy. And so when the tax collectors came to, to repent and be baptised and said, what then shall we do? I'm pretty sure the crowds were looking at John going, yeah, now's a chance, John. They were ready for John to say, stop collaborating with the enemy, you traitors. Is that what John said? No. He simply said to them, collect no more than you're authorised to do. He wasn't calling into question that, that they shouldn't be paying taxes at all. That was their employment, collecting taxes. And we've told in Romans and, and Peter that, that God has instituted the governments. And so they had the Roman government over them. And so it was right for them to pay taxes. What was wrong was the tax collectors charging extra and shoving it in their pocket. Don't cheat the system. Don't steal from those you're collecting from. So then the soldiers asked him, well, what should we do? Now, we don't know who these soldiers were. We don't know if they were Roman centurions or whether they were the local soldiers. Now, the thing is, their armies had already been disbanded, right? They'd been beaten. They weren't allowed to have soldiers, but these might have been local soldiers who were sort of being used as law enforcement, like police, if you like. Not sure. Don't know what they were. Either way, these soldiers were basically enforcing law and order on behalf of the Roman government once again. Now, did John say to them, stop working for that tyrant? No, he didn't. He said, don't use your power and authority to extort money from anyone and be content with your wages. Basically, the examples as I see them of repentance that John gave, we could probably summarise it with the commandment that Jesus would later give to love God and love your neighbour as yourself. I reckon we could summarise it like that. Share what you have with those who are in genuine need. Love your neighbour as yourself. 
and deal honestly and fairly with everyone, putting others first. That's what repentance looks like. Do you get the picture? All right, so it was obvious that, that what John was teaching had the fingerprints of God all over it. And they, so they started wondering, is this bloke the Messiah? And the answer to that is no. Uh, John said, I baptise you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The coming of Jesus causes a great division. Now, the world doesn't want to hear that, but it's true. The coming of Jesus causes a great division. There's great separation between those who are saved to eternal life and those who are judged to a fire that cannot be put out. And the image that, that John gives is, is that of a threshing floor. Now, today we use headers, or as the Yanks like to call them, a combine harvester. Is that what they call them now? I hate that. They're trying to get us to call them that too, but I think we've sort of rebelled and still call them headers. So a threshing floor is basically like a... Well, a header is a threshing floor on wheels, really. And so the wheat gets picked, and then it has to be threshed. And that happens in the drum of a header, and the threshing floor, it either gets beaten out or trampled over, rubbed out or whatever. So threshing gets the grain out, but then you've still got all of the straw and the chaff to get mixed up with the grain. And so the next step is to get the straw out. Now, in a header, that happens at the straw walkers, and, just boom, 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 and, and it just sort of shakes all the wheat out and the chaff, and you're left with wheat and chaff. In the threshing floor, they would pick up the bundles of straw, give it a bit of a shake, and then take it out, and that becomes animal feed or hay. But that still leaves all the wheat and chaff. Now, in the header, that gets sorted out in the sieves. So the, the chaff goes through the sieves, and then the big fan's blowing up through there, and the chaff gets blown out the back, and the, he and the grain goes through and gets augured up into the grain box. On the threshing floor, they would use what's called a, a winnowing fork. It had to be winnowed. And so you'd wait for a breezy day, or you'd have some lackey on a great big fan that they'd have to wave all day, and you'd get your winnowing fork and scoop up wheat and chaff mix and throw it up into the wind, and the the chaff would grow over to the side and settle while the wheat drops straight down. And they would just do that over and over and over again until they're left with a big pile of chaff over there, big pile of wheat here. The wheat then would get gathered up into the barn. And what do you do with that chaff? It's not real, all a husk. It's, it's not much good for anything. So they'd burn it. And once you set all that wheat husk on fire, there's no putting out that fire. And that's the image that John is giving us. This is the image of salvation and the judgment when Jesus comes. The wheat gets gathered into his barn. The chaff gets burned up with fire that cannot be put out. Who are the wheat? Well, it goes without saying. The wheat are those who are prepared for the coming judgment 
by welcoming Jesus into their hearts through the road of repentance. Repentance for what? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance itself does not forgive us. It's repentance for the forgiveness of sins that comes through Jesus. Those who are judged are those who do not welcome Jesus into their hearts and who do not demonstrate their turning to God by practical, godly living. It's as simple as that. So how do we respond to that? You know, when most of us hear about judgment, we think, oh, that's not good news. Absolutely, it is good news. The, the good news is that those who turn their hearts toward God have eternal life. The day of judgment has come and they've fled from the wrath. They've been saved by the blood of Jesus. They are like the good wheat that's gathered into the barn. Good news. Everyone agree? Good news? Woohoo! But at the same time, it is also good news that admission to the kingdom of God is for the genuine. If we are not genuine in our faith, and if we are not fruitful in godly living, that's evidence that we've chosen a different path and we're destined for a different kingdom. How do we respond to this? We repent for the forgiveness of sins. A uh, new pastor uh, was preaching his very first sermon at his new church, and he preached a wonderful sermon. Some, some people said, oh, I think that's the best message I've ever heard, but basically the guts of the sermon was, repent, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And they thought, that's fantastic. We've got a good fella here. Anyway, on the second Sunday, he preached exactly the same sermon, which didn't really matter because most people had forgotten the sermon from the week before. Repent, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The third Sunday was exactly the same message again. Repent, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and some folk thought, that's sounding familiar. I think we might have heard something like that before. Anyway, on the fourth Sunday, it came again. Repent, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And this time the elders decided they'd better take action. So they met with him after church and, and asked him for an explanation. And, and yes, he was able to preach other sermons. Yes, he did have other sermons that he could preach. And yes, he really did want to preach other sermons. The problem, well, I'll give you another sermon as soon as you've repented. Our relationship with God cannot begin without repentance. In the Gospel of Luke, the repentance for the forgiveness of sins is a concept which brackets the entire ministry of Jesus. So I told you in the introduction that, that the main message of the, of the Gospel of Luke is the, the fulfilment of God's promises of salvation. That's the message of Luke. But this message is bracketed at the beginning, at the end, with repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
It begins with John the Baptist preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then at the very end of the Gospel of Luke, just before Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples what their job is to do once he's gone. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 47, it says, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Without repentance, there is no genuine turning toward God. And without repentance, there is no forgiveness. And that's why it is critical that we understand what repentance is. And don't get conned by, oh, it's just a change of mind. It's much more than a change of mind. It's a complete change of a whole person. We've turned our way from the way that we once were and turn our way to the way of God. Now, many, many heard that message of John and responded. And some, no doubt, did prepare a level road for Jesus in their hearts. They are ready to receive Jesus. But not everyone. There were those who were like King Herod. King Herod hated John. Why? Because basically John was a, a needle, needling him. Picked him up on all of the evil that King Herod had done. And the one that gets specific mention is that he had his brother's wife. But rather than listen to God, rather than listen to the word of God that John was preaching, King Herod had John locked up and eventually executed. And there are many people today who are just like King Herod. They want to put the message of repentance out of sight and out of mind. They want to lock that message of repentance away in a dungeon where it won't see light of day. Even within the church, people like that. We don't want to hear about sin and judgment. We don't want to hear about repentance. We want to hear about blessings. Talk more about blessings. We like that. There's no room for blessings until we've repented. And so this is what we proclaim. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. In whose name? The name of Jesus, the name above every name, the, uh, the name of the, the, the only one who can save us. It must be preached to all nations. Beginning where? Beginning right where you are. It must begin here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son that we might have forgiveness in his name. We recognise the message of, of John the Baptist and the message of Jesus are the one and the same. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we turn away from godlessness. We flee from evil. We flee from the coming wrath. 
and we turn our hearts towards you. But Lord, let this be something which is far greater than just something we do in our minds or with our thoughts. Lord, help us to bear good fruit. Show us that the areas of our lives that must be pruned away. And Lord, by your Holy Spirit, dwell within us and help us to bear fruit of the Spirit to your glory. Amen.